October 7th, some 1,200 Israelis were killed in a surprise Al-Qassam terror attack. I remember that day well, I'm sure. Since October the 7th, some 20,000 Palestinians have been killed in Gaza and a few in the West Bank also. In light of these circumstances, Christmas will not be celebrated in Bethlehem this year. Evangelical pastors like Mitri Rahib, Luther Isaac, Rihad Salam have chosen to lament with their congregations instead of celebrate this year. At Luther Isaac's church, just a stone's throw away from the church of the Nativity, an unusual nativity scene replaces the site of a traditional Christmas tree. Jesus is cradled in a manger created from the rubble of a destroyed building. Pastor Isaac was on CNN just this last week, and here's what he said. To me, the connection was very natural. Jesus, as a baby, was born at a time of occupation in the Roman Empire, who himself survived a massacre when he was born and became a refugee out of all places in Egypt. This is very familiar to us Palestinians. The meaning of Christmas to us is what we created in this manger, that God is in solidarity with us in our pain and suffering. Jesus was to be born today in the world, he would have been born in Gaza with those children who are pulled from under the rubble every day. It, that's the manger, is a message to the world that this is what Christmas looks like in the birthplace of Jesus. And pictures of this manger scene have flooded the internet. I don't know if you've seen them yet. Well, in the new year, on Wednesday nights, I do hope to take up this issue of the ongoing conflict. I don't want to wade into those treacherous waters today. But I do want to ask whether we in the Western world are correctly reading the Nativity stories. My goal today is not to ruin Christmas for anyone. We are going to end on a very exciting note. But let's let the stories speak. Let's find the true hope of Christ's incarnation. For Christmas 2018, I preached a sermon titled, The Eucatastrophe of Human History. Many of you were here. I would like to bring back that term this morning and some of the themes that I preached on that occasion, but I won't preach the precise sermon once again. In his 1939 essay on fairy stories, J.R.R. Tolkien coined the phrase, catastrophe." That was a term that he used to describe the incarnation. Now, we often use fairy story to refer to something that's fanciful or untrue, but that is not what Tolkien means. By fairy story, he means a deeper, larger story, a meta-narrative to use a term that is popular today. Tolkien writes, The Gospels contain a fairy story, or a story of a larger kind, which embraces all the essence of other fairy stories. And among its marvels is the greatest and most complete conceivable eucatastrophe. The birth of Christ is the eucatastrophe of man's history. The resurrection is the eucatastrophe of the story of the Incarnation. What does he mean? Well, the prefix E-U, derived through Latin from Greek, means good. A eucatastrophe is literally a good catastrophe. A eucatastrophe occurs when the story's protagonist, destined for some ignominious end, some certain doom experiences a glorious turn of events, a good catastrophe. The Christmas story of the incarnation of God, says Tolkien, is just that, a sudden glorious turn of events in the catastrophe of human history. 
So let's approach the Christmas story this morning from that perspective and see whether it takes on a whole new light. We begin with Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. Matthew 1, we are greeted with a genealogy. And that genealogy is intended to plunge us into a dark and sordid world. Jewish culture venerated four great matriarchs, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah. But Matthew's genealogy contains a curious substitution of four other women. Three of them best remembered for their immoral character. In verse 3, you'll find Tamar, a prostitute, whose sordid deeds are recorded in Genesis 38. Let me briefly lend the details since we have discussed this story previously. Jacob had a son named Judah, through whom the lines of Christ would pass. Judah was a perverse man. He took a daughter of a Canaanite out of wedlock, and she bore him three sons. Eventually, Judah arranged a marriage between his oldest son, Ur, and Tamar. But Ur was a wicked man, and God killed him. So Judah arranged for a second son, Onan, to marry Tamar. But Onan also was a wicked man, and God killed him. Judah had promised, and in time, he would give his third son to Tamar, a promise he never intended to keep. Tamar then played the harlot, and Judah impregnated the harlot, his own daughter-in-law, with the messianic seed. When Judah later discovered his daughter-in-law's immorality, he sought to have her burned alive. If he succeeds, the line of Messiah perishes in her womb. But Tamar was cunning. She had stolen Judah's possessions, and when he came into her and then left, he left them with her. And when she brought them forth, Judah suddenly recognized his own folly. And the seed of the Messiah, sired in prostitution, was spared by theft. And we haven't gotten very far into Matthew's account, and already we're faced with the catastrophe. And these catastrophes go all the way back to the beginning of the story. The serpent seduced Cain to murder his brother Abel and the seed of the woman. But God suddenly intervened and appointed Seth to preserve the messianic line. The serpent turned the whole world against its creator. But God intervened once more and preserved the seed through a single family in a single boat pitching across the angry waves. Abraham himself threatened the Messianic seed when he delivered his own wife to a pagan named Abimelech. God had promised that within one year, Isaac would be born. And that's when Abraham delivered his wife to a pagan harem. What was he thinking? In fact, the situation was so critical that God stepped in and closed all the wombs of all the women until it got resolved. And these catastrophes only continue with Abraham's offspring. Isaac nearly failed to marry, too content to play video games in the basement of Abraham's tent, I suspect. Jacob the deceiver narrowly escapes murder at the hands of his brother Esau. The dangerous story of God smuggling his Messiah into the world just rumbles right through the entire Old Testament. Consider bloody Queen Athaliah, who nearly extinguishes David's line. Now, would you notice another name at the end of verse 9? The name Hezekiah. And then read the first line of verse 10. And Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh who was an exceedingly wicked man. But right between those two names, the messianic seed was twice threatened with extinction. Let me show you. Turn back to 2 Kings chapter 20. 2 Kings chapter 20. 
These Old Testament stories that we have are not written merely as a sort of treasure trove of historical curiosities. They really do profoundly shape the way that we think about Jesus Christ. Would you notice verse 21? 2 Kings 20, verse 21, And Hezekiah slept with his fathers. And Manasseh, his son, reigned in his place. And the next verse adds a crucial detail. 2 Kings 21, 1, Manasseh was, well, years old when he began to reign. Now, why is that important? Well, look back at chapter 20 and verse 1. In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die, you shall not recover. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord, saying, Now, O Lord, please remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. And before Isaiah had gone out of the middle court, the word of the Lord came to him, Turn back. And say to Hezekiah, the leader of my people, Thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer, I have seen your tears. Behold, I will heal you. On the third day you shall go up to the house of the Lord, and I will add fifteen years to your life. So here's Hezekiah. He is suddenly stricken with a life-threatening illness. Isaiah tells him to put his house in order. Hezekiah then prays and beseeches the Lord for a new life. And God hears, and he grants him some 15 additional years. But Hezekiah's life is not the only one in jeopardy. Manasseh, his son, would not be born for another two years. Remember, he ascended to his father's throne at the age of 12 upon Hezekiah's death. Had Hezekiah died, Manasseh would have never been born. And the life line to the Messiah would have been exterminated. Now, I said that between Hezekiah and Manasseh, the seed of the Messiah was actually twice threatened with extinction. If we were to go back and read all of 2 Kings 18 through 19, we would learn of an invasion. An invasion of Judah by Sennacherib the Assyrian. Sennacherib's war engine had steamrolled scores of cities. And Lachish, a fortress city set up to protect Jerusalem, had been destroyed. And Jerusalem was next in line. But Hezekiah was, of course, a man of prayer. And we took the crisis of the Lord God, dispatched Isaiah with the good news. Look at 1 Kings 19, verse 34. For I will defend the city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. God had made a covenant with David. And Hezekiah carries David's royal seed. So how does God respond to this imminent threat? Look at this, 35. And that night, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. God will overcome an army of 185,000 if he must. But he will preserve the line of the Messiah. He will guarantee it. And now let's return to Matthew chapter 1. But remember, these Old Testament stories are not there merely as historical curiosities. They are indeed part of a larger story full of catastrophes, sickness, war, invasion, immorality, political malfeasance. It's all there. A story through which God relentlessly pursues His agenda of bringing His Messiah into the world. And now look at verse 5. 
Now locate the second of Matthew's four women. Her name is Rahab. Rahab is named in Joshua, Hebrews, and James. In all three, she is called simply the prostitute. A prostitute was a mother of David and a mother of his greater offspring. The Rahab story is a beautiful catastrophe. She lived in a pagan city devoted to utter destruction. And to be singled out as a prostitute in a wicked culture must have been quite an accomplishment. But Rahab's desperate faith spared not only her life, but the line of Messiah when her city crumbled around her. And a catastrophe now of another sort. It's a story centered on the third woman in Matthew's genealogy. She's too, she too is mentioned right there in verse 5. And her name is Ruth. The book of Ruth is a beautifully tragic story of famine, grinding poverty, and death. The first verse of Ruth gives us two very important clues to its interpretation. Here's what the text says. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Judges and famine. Those are your two clues. The period of the judges were indeed a dark, dark period in Israel's history. Earlier this year, we had occasion to reference the end of the book of Judges when there was no king in Israel. And everyone does what's right in his own eyes. And the result was savage. A Levite hacking his concubine to pieces after enabling her gang rape. A near genocide of a tribe given over to Sodomy. The slaughter of a whole town. The kidnapping and forced marriage of girls after their families had been butchered. That's judges. These are the life and times of Ruth the Moabite. And secondly, famine in the land only compounds the tragedy. Deuteronomy promised that famine would come when the people forsook God. So apparently the people have forsaken their God. You want to read Ruth through the eyes of a Chinese peasant who has survived the horrible tragedies of Mao Zedong's Cultural Revolution. Read Ruth through the eyes of a Lakota Sioux who were forced onto arid reservations after the slaughter of their buffalo. Imagine a famine that's so severe that you are forced to flee to another country. And in that country, you bury your husband and your two sons. Well, these are the life and times of Naomi. And we inevitably read Ruth with the end in view. She is the great far-off grandmother of a king and in the line of the Messiah. But neither truth offered Ruth any consolation. She had never heard of David, much less his greater offspring. Ruth was a poverty-stricken orphan Gentile who buried her husband and abandoned her country forever. Her marriage to Boaz would appear scandalous to those who celebrated the purity of the Jewish race. And certainly no one interpreted her marriage as an allegory of a future Messiah claiming his wretched bride out of every tribe and tongue and nation. We see it today, the beautiful catastrophe to the dawning light of the New Covenant. That's the story of Ruth. Now in verse 6, is a final woman and a final catastrophe. And she is left, uh, left unnamed, highlighting her sin, and even more importantly, I suspect, the sin of her lover who abused his position of power. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. King David fathered a son with another man's wife, Bathsheba. And I suspect that his is the most famous account of adultery in world history, eclipsing even that of Henry VIII. Henry, the 
manipulated women to produce a male heir, and he arranged the deaths of those who fell out of his favor. And David provided a tragic model. David's son Solomon was himself a messiah. Messiah is a king. Solomon was a messiah in the line of the greater messiah. But poor Uriah, like Bethlehem's infants a thousand years later, suffered the tragic consequences of Messiah's birth. Now, if Bathsheba, like her husband, was a Hittite, then all four women in Matthew's genealogy were Gentiles. And that truth was equally catastrophic, again, for any Jew celebrating the purity of his own race and anticipating a Jewish Messiah. So clearly, Matthew's Gospel introduces us to a strange and catastrophic story, and we've done little more than gather a few hints from the genealogy. And friend, we, friends, we could look back at the backstories of every one of those kings named, just read through the lives of those kings, and there's tragedy after tragedy after tragedy. The fall just rumbles all the way down from Adam all the way to Jesus. And in fact, the text offers us a second clue as to the catastrophe. Now, we call it the virginal conception. Mary became pregnant without the intervention of a human father. Matthew bluntly states in verse 18, before they came together. And again in verse 25, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. Now, Here's how we inevitably read those lines. The virginal conception was the first in a great river of miracles that just washed right through Israel in the glorious days of Jesus. That's how we read the story. But that is not how Jesus' contemporaries understood Jesus. John 8 and verse 41 records the Jewish leadership's angry retort to Jesus. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality, implying, of course, that he was. Joseph himself was quite unconvinced that Mary had been supernaturally impregnated. In fact, an angel had intervened to keep him from calling off the engagement. Some 30 years passed before Jesus performs his first miracle. And the Jews finally attribute his miracle to the occult. These are done by Beelzebub. Do you really think they accepted his virginal conception? Not a chance. God arranged the most humiliating circumstances possible under which to bring his Messiah at long last into the world. And the catastrophes continue. In chapter 2 and verse 2, Gentiles from the east, the wise men greet Jesus. Look at these words as King of the Jews. But actually, that title is ironic. Where are the Jews greeting their Messiah? Where are the Jewish leaders? Friends, where are the Zionist leaders today? David Ben-Gurion, the Israel Sharons, the Benjamin Netanyahu's, who will embrace the truth of Psalm 2. I have set my king on Zion. Where are they? Jesus is king of the Jews, but ironically that title disappears in Matthew's Gospel. Only to show up at the crucifixion where Jesus is crucified as king of the Jews. As an Arthur coming to Camelot, only to be crucified. As an Aragorn being murdered by an orc before claiming the throne of Gondor. Who wants to read a story like that? And the catastrophe continues in verse 13 when the angel warns Joseph in a dream Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt. There is a huge global debate today over the status of refugees. It is so politicized that it's difficult for us to really feel the pain of the dispossessed. But can you feel the existential fear of being gunned down in Bosnia 
Rwanda, Somalia, been infected with chemical weapons in Syria. Jesus' route to Egypt would have carried him and his family straight to a place that is today called Gaza. It's a narrow strip of land some 25 miles long and 7 miles wide, and it holds the world's largest concentration of refugee children. Gaza has been called by Jewish historians the world's largest concentration camp and the world's largest prison. 70% of Gaza's 2 million inhabitants and refugees are children of refugees that fled the ethnic cleansing of Israel in 1948. It's called the Nakba. Now imagine that you gave birth to a child in Bethlehem in the days of Jesus and you weren't warned to flee. Look at verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all that region who were two years old or under. I have never seen that scene painted on a Christmas card, have you? And listen to the voice of lamentation predicted by Jeremiah, verse 18. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Friends, that is no Christmas carol, and I love Christmas carols. That is a funeral dirge. There's hardly anything more haunting, no more terrible sound in all the world than a mother wailing for her lost child. And that dirge was heard across Israel on the morning of October the 7th when some 35 Israeli mothers were suddenly bereaved of their children. And that sound continues to be heard across Gaza today where some 9,000 Palestinian children have been buried in the rubble. These catastrophes still haunt the land of Messiah's birth. Now, friends, I'm really not trying to ruin your Christmas celebration, but we only have two accounts of the nativity, and Matthew's is actually very grim, and it's supposed to be grim. But let's turn at this point to Luke chapter 2. On the whole, Luke's birth narrative is more joyful more likely to appear on a Christmas card, Luke chapter 2. But I want to suggest to you that despite Luke's joyfulness, there is a rather dystopian feel to Luke. The genre was popularized in modern times by Orwell in his 1984. Perhaps you've read that. Or Huxley's Brave New World. Or more recently, Susan Collins and The Hunger Games. In the dystopian genre, everything appears orderly, happy, and prosperous on the surface. But under the surface, a deadly cancer just eats away at society. Let's begin reading with verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. Now, Luke dates the birth of Jesus to a decree of registration for the purposes of taxation during the days of Caesar Augustus. The Caesar Augustus is the first Roman emperor. Before him, Rome had been convulsed by multitudes of civil wars ambitious generals claiming power in the kingdom. Augustus himself fought some five, some five civil wars before proclaiming a united kingdom, a united empire. 
Under Augustus, Rome began to enjoy a period of great architectural, artistic, and agricultural prosperity. It is sometimes called the Pax Romana, or the Roman Peace. And Augustus came to be celebrated as a god. Here's what the proconsul Paulus Fabius Maximus said of him regarding his birthday. Providence has with eager generosity bestowed the most beautiful ornament on our life by bringing forth Augustus as Savior for us and for our descendants, the man who ends war and creates peace. He has towered over all the benefactors who lived before him. The birthday of the God Augustus meant for the world the beginning of the message of peace, which has Augustus as its author. And friends, that phrase, translated message of peace, is our New Testament term, euangelion, or gospel. Same word. The gospel of Augustus. The gospel of the God, the Savior of the world who brings peace. So you have to appreciate the not-so-subtle jab that Luke takes at Augustus when he tells of a glorious emperor taxing the whole world. Something's not quite right here. In the Hunger Games, the capital seems peaceful, prosperous, full of light. But out there in the outlying districts, there are rumblings of oppression, of heavy taxation, of trouble brewing. You can just feel a catastrophe is coming. You can feel it right down in your bones. Tolkien wrote, the world has changed. I feel it in the water. I feel it in the earth. I smell it in the air. So here are poor Mary and Joseph, and they're just caught up in these vast, destabilizing changes sweeping through the world. They are forced to return to Bethlehem at the worst possible time when Mary is ready to deliver. And they are taxed by a God whose gospel of peace brings the Roman legions trampling through their country. And as the story proceeds, there are certainly moments of great hope and joy. The veil of heaven suddenly lifts and the angel choir just burst out and sing over those fields in Bethlehem. It's a beautiful scene. Shepherds rush in from their fields to greet this strange child resting in a manger. And Jesus is warmly greeted in the temple by Simeon and by Anna who understood the importance of this child created in Mary's arms. It's a very warm story. But then again, something is off. There is the problem of the manger. Jesus was laid in an animal feeding trough. There is the problem of Mary and Joseph's poverty. They offered a mean offering of turtle doves and Tiny little pigeons, little tiny bird, to celebrate Jesus' birth. There's the problem of Simeon's prophecy. Mary, his sword will pierce your soul. And there's the problem of Anna, having been widowed now for 84 years. That's a long time to be widowed. How old was she? She certainly will be long gone before the Messiah grows to manhood. And where's all the nobility? Back in 1994, I worked for a plant and tree nursery in Longmont, Colorado. One day, most of our stock cleared out almost overnight. Why? Well, it turns out the Emperor Akihito from Japan was coming to Longmont for two nights. The Emperor was visiting the United States, and he wanted to learn more about the life of an average Midwestern resident in an average Midwestern town somewhere in the United States. So he chose, of all places, Longmont, Colorado, where I grew up. 
However, New York Times columnist Captain Manigault offered a very insightful perspective on his visit. Here's what she wrote. There is a problem with the intersection of royalty and ordinary people. They do not intersect. Every moment of the emperor's visit was scripted, and that's why all of our plants sold out. Every street in Longmont where his limousine would pass would be spruced up for the coming emperor. Manigold writes how distinctly un-American the trip was. She writes, There are no stops for barbecue chips and soft drinks along the road. There is no time to sit and wonder which way to turn or what to do next. On Saturday, the couple arrived to a throng of supporters at Stapleton International Airport in Denver. Later, they pulled up outside Susan and Kenneth Pratt's house in Longmont where they would spend the next two nights. Now, Kenneth Pratt, in those days, was the city mayor. He had a beautiful home in a posh section of town. And she writes, The Pratts were at the door to welcome the royal couple. The emperor and empress unfurled themselves from their limousine, and just as the Secret Service van sideswiped the handsome red rock wall that girds the property. Several blocks tumbled to the ground. Everyone smiled politely. The Secret Service men stiffened in their post in the family garage. Radios crackled. Introductions were made. Everyone smiled politely. The Pratt left. And the Emperor and Empress prepared for a quiet evening. That night, a Japanese chef, flown in from San Francisco, prepared a private dinner for the Emperor, the Empress, and several guests. Well, isn't that how the story of royalty is supposed to go? This is how we greet our kings. No scandals descent from prostitutes. No sleeping in a manger with filthy animals. No pauper's offerings. No wailing mothers bereaving their dead infants. No concerns with the owner's burdens of taxation. No disheveled refugees crowding across the borders. Actually, when you read the traditional stories of human royalty and then read the birth nativities, they are catastrophic. If Japanese royalty experienced even a sliver of the ignominy that was experienced by Jesus Christ, it would be a national disgrace both to our country and to Japan. All that to say, Matthew and John are not writing a script for a Hallmark movie. That's just not what they're doing. Now, at this point, you might be thinking, I'm some sort of Ebenezer Scrooge. Well, you might think this whole sermon is a catastrophe. Well, don't forget what Tolkien said. The birth of Christ is the eucatastrophe of man's history. Where is the good? Where is the good in the catastrophe? Let's answer that question by skipping ahead now some 33 years. The story of the Incarnation is not built on one doctrine, my friends. It's actually built on two doctrines. The virginal conception and the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. Tolkien said the resurrection is the eucatastrophe of the story of the Incarnation. What does the resurrection have to do with this? Well, let's turn to John chapter 20, and let's notice an extremely important detail that will cast a flood of light on the Nativity narratives. John chapter 20. Without this really crucial detail... Friends, we would not be gathered here today, some 2,000 years later, to celebrate the birth of Messiah. The resurrection turned the story of the Incarnation in a whole new direction. In John's account, Thomas was not present when Jesus first appeared to the other disciples. And so in verse 25, we read, But the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. And notice Thomas' critical response. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. 
Thomas demands empirical proof of the resurrection, but friends, not just any proof. He must see the identical human body that was crucified. It's got to be the same body. The same body that went into the grave. Certainly it was resurrected and transformed. Paul explains that elsewhere. But that body was organically connected to the body that was murdered. How do we know? The scars. They're right there. Thomas demanded to see the scars in the body of the virginally conceived child. I must see the scars. And so what happens? Eight days later, verse 26, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Jesus offers Thomas definitive proof that the body is one and the same. Transformed, yes, but the scars were there. It is, in fact, the same body. The body that was virginally conceived in Mary's womb. The body that was placed in that disease-ridden receptacle, that manger in Bethlehem. That body that was bundled and hurried across the border down to Egypt. That body that was hunted down by Herod's soldiers. That body whose wretched visage just pierced the heart of Mary like a spear. That body whose humanity was sired by adulterers and planted in the wombs of prostitutes. It's the same body. God entered the catastrophic story of humanity and God resurrected his humanity. That's the eucatastrophe. God resurrects His humanity. And the scars are there in the body of the Christmas child. So I wonder then why we are gathered here to worship this child some 2,000 years later. Well, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul draws an organic link between Christ's bodily resurrection and our own. Here's what he says. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Christ's resurrection was merely the beginning of a whole harvest of humanity from all across the globe. Now, if we are resurrected like Christ, then his scars tell us that he comes for our, our humanity. He's coming back to resurrect our humanity. And in Romans 8, Paul also draws an organic link between our resurrection and the resurrection of a whole new creation. Here's what he says. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. That means our own resurrection. For the creation was subjected to futility. That's the catastrophe. The creation itself, though, Paul says, will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom, the glory of the children of God. When God redeems our humanity, He raises the whole fallen creation along with us. That's the new catastrophe. So, put it all together. Friends, Jesus was bodily raised from the dead. The scars tell the story. And because Jesus was raised from the dead, we will be raised from the dead. And when we are raised from the dead, the whole new creation will be raised from the dead. The whole new creation is indissolubly, organically, permanently united with Christ in His bodily resurrection. And the Christmas story was indeed a new catastrophe all along. We just couldn't understand it until we saw the scars. The scars were inflicted in a world of catastrophic rebellion against its creator. But the scars tell us that he is making all things new. Here's what Tolkien wrote. 
The new catastrophe is a sudden happy turn in the story which pierces you with joy that brings tears. It produces its peculiar effect because it is a sudden glimpse of truth. Your whole nature chained in material cause and effect, the chain of death, feels a sudden relief as if a major limb out of joint has suddenly snapped back. The scars in the hands of Jesus are the glimpse of truth. In the bodily resurrection of Jesus, all those limbs out of joint suddenly just snap back into place and Jesus walked right out of the grave. And the pinnacle moment of human catastrophe, the murder of God, suddenly became the greatest new catastrophe in all of human history. The world refused to accept the humanity of God. But here's the good news. God refused to stay dead. Now, as we conclude, would you recall what Catherine Manigold said of the Emperor of Japan? She wrote, there was a problem with the intersection of royalty and ordinary people. They do not intersect. Did you know that for many centuries the Japanese deified their emperor as a god? Just as the Romans did in the time of Christ. And because he was a god, like the Roman emperor, he was not allowed to intersect with other, other humans. But that man who slept in luxury in the mayor's house, three miles from my house growing up, was no god. On January 1st, 1946, after two atomic bombs exploded at Hiroshima and Nagasaki, presiding over an empire in ruins, the Emperor of Japan issued, listen to this, a Declaration of Humanity. It was one of the last acts of Hirohito, the imperial sovereign. And that declaration rejects, quote, the false conception that the emperor is divine. What a catastrophe. The worship of man for centuries. And then he claims the false conception that the emperor is divine. Now here's the paradox that turns the story of Jesus into a new catastrophe. The story of Jesus in the Gospels actually begins with the declaration of humanity. That's the difference. It begins with the declaration of his humanity to the line of Tamar, and Rahab, David, Manasseh. The story of Jesus proves that royalty and ordinary people do intersect. Just read the four Gospels. So, friend, if you were born in grinding poverty, if your ancestors were prostitutes and murderers, if a sadistic warlord drove you like refugees across international borders, if you faced the possibility of a horrific death, well, the Christmas story is for you. It is a declaration of the humanity of God. A declaration that royalty and ordinary people do intersect. But is it a true story? Well, in the story of human rulers like Hirohito, the declaration of deity is followed by a bitter declaration of humanity. But in the story of Jesus, the declaration of humanity is followed by the declaration of deity. And that's why Paul says of Jesus in Romans 1 and verse 4, he was declared to be the Son of God in power. How? When? According to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Friends, the incarnation is the declaration of the humanity of God in the virgin womb and the declaration of the deity of Jesus from the virgin tomb. And it is the scars and the babe from Bethlehem that unites those two declarations. 
Now this morning as we go to prayer, I mean, can I ask you to take out your phones for just a minute? I, 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 I debated whether or not I should do this. I decided last minute to do it. Would you just pull up Google for just a minute? All right. And I really don't want to make a political statement at all. But would you just Google the phrase, Jesus in the rubble, Bethlehem? Jesus in the rubble, Bethlehem. This is the image that I was speaking of at the beginning. And there is Jesus in the manger. If you click on images, I'm sure you'll see all kinds of pictures. You see it? Little baby there in the rubble. This is a situation now in Palestine. The situation in Israel. And in Palestine and Israel today, the streets are silent. Nobody's celebrating Christmas. And I thought I would send an email. Uh, Brother Johanna gave me the email address of Mr. Isaac, and I sent him an email. And I told him, you know what? I would like for our church to enter into solidarity with you and with Jewish believers who are praying. And we want to see an end of this conflict in Israel today and in Gaza today. And I let him know that we would be praying look at this image and uh, hopefully take it to heart. So, I don't want to end, you know, on a tragedy, but can we take just a few moments and just pray for Christian Jews in Israel and Christian Palestinians in Bethlehem and West Bank and Gaza. We pray for brothers and sisters whose Christmas today will be rather grim compared to ours. Take a moment to pray for believers in Ukraine and believers in other parts of the world as they go into this Christmas season. The Lord would give them peace. The Lord would give them joy. And the Lord would show them the wounds of Christ that they could look on the scars and find joy. Can we take a few moments and pray that way this morning?